106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Hey, cassettes. Welcome back to another episode of the Black Case Diaries podcast. Hey. Hey. This is season four. And just a reminder, we're three old friends learning as much as we can about movies and TV and hopefully teaching others in the process. I'm Robin. I'm here with... Adam. And Marcy. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) We're back and it's June, which only can mean one thing. It's time for June tunes. That's right. That's right. We decided to return strong with our now annual series on movie music. This doesn't mean that we're going to do it next year. It's just that we did it last year and we're doing it this year. So now it's annual. Yep. It's the second annual time. But don't. <laughs> don't I mean, expect a third annual. I mean, there might be. Unless we're feeling it. Who knows? This month, we'll be covering various topics all involving music in movies. Today, we're starting with an all time favorite, one of my all time favorite movies. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. In the summer of 1980, a film that defied description raced into theaters. The Blues Brothers, starring two big names from SNL, an all-star list of rhythm and blues legends, and one of the biggest budgets in comedy history. Even John Landis, the film's director, wasn't sure what genre the film belonged in. Is it a comedy? A musical? Forty years later, one thing's for certain. It's a cult classic of epic proportions. It is... The perfect balance. It's like they started out trying to make three movies. Right. And it all just became one movie. One of them was a buddy action Yeah, flick. buddy cop, or not almost, yeah. almost cop. Almost They're in a cop cops. car. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> almost buddy cop movie, a musical, and just a, I don't know, a, a comedy of some kind. Yeah, just a, a comedy. Yeah. Wacky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Today we're taking a look at the Blues Brothers, the history of the SNL sketch, the band, and the movie. We're 369 miles from Chicago, have a full dock of research, it's dark, and we're wearing headphones. Hit it. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) So, for the history, I guess we're going to have to start very back, far, 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 in the dark ages in the early 1970s. Whoa. (laughs) They were still using rocks as tools. (laughs) My parents were still in high school. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. Belushi and Aykroyd first came up with the idea for the Blues Brothers Band while drinking an Aykroyd speakeasy in Toronto, the 505 Club, in the fall of 1973. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, he was 20 years old, and he already owned his own speakeasy. Wow. See, already cooler than us, and he was younger than (laughs) us at that time. That bugs me every time I hear about it, like I hear about how young athletes are and stuff like that. I'm like, Um, uh, do you think he had crystal skull vodka <laughs> at the speakeasy? <laughs> we're not talking about that. No. Is it? <laughs> we're this is the seventies. We're pretending that none of that exists. Okay. So we're yeah. just gonna <laughs> <Got it. laughs> anyway. Belushi had come to town to poach talent for National Lampoon's Radio Hour in New York, and had heard of the then twenty-year-old Ackroyd. They met backstage at Second City, a comedy troupe based in Chicago, but with a branch in Toronto. So, John Belushi did Second City in Chicago. He was from Chicago. He did it for two years, and now he was in New York. Dan Aykroyd is doing Second City stuff in Toronto. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he went up there to poach talent, 
and he tried to poach Dan Aykroyd, and he was like, no. <laughs> I'm making a lot of money in here. I'm loved here. I, yeah. He, yeah. I watched an interview. An interview, he said, I literally had money in the walls. Like, I, <laughs> like I stored money <laughs> in walls. I was so rich. He said, oh, my was, gosh. I did not want to leave. That's amazing. Son of a gun. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he didn't trust Banks then, so. (laughs) Yeah. That night, the duo started listening to blues records. At first, Belushi didn't see himself as much of a blues fan, but Aykroyd's devotion to the genre changed his mind. Very soon, the two young comedians shared this love, and they talked about creating a band. Howard Shore, the eventual music director for SNL and acclaimed composer, helped them come up with the name The Blues Brothers. So Howard Shore, if if that if you heard that name, if you're listening and you thought Howard Shore, that, that sounds familiar. He he scored the Hobbit movie and Lord of the Rings. At least I was He's, sure I've heard of him. Ha! Huh, I knew huh. it. I knew it was coming. There was like right. you had this sparkle on your face. Yeah, like yeah. I thought of it immediately. <laughs> At the time, I guess Belushi was. He said, "You know, I don't think I like the blues that much," and Dan Aykroyd said. You're from Chicago. <laughs> How can you? What do you mean? Not like the blues. And uh, he said, "Well, I like this band and this band." Started naming bands, and Dan Aykroyd said, "Those are blues bands. You like the blues." <laughs> and so then You're he dummy. <laughs> yeah. And so then you know they started listening to a lot of stuff, and they said yeah. that you know with John Belushi it was kind of like everything. If he liked something, it was an obsession. Mm-hmm. He didn't just kind of mm-hmm. like things. Uh. So, you know, when he started to like the blues, he really dove headfirst into it. Realizing that all the bands he already liked are blues bands, he's like, well, shoot, I probably am going to like every blues band I listen to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I was thinking that's one of the genres where if if you think you don't like it, you probably just haven't heard enough right, right. <laughs> or or heard the right stuff because i mean there's bad music in every genre right when, when in the interviews that i was watching one of the band members did say he's i'm not really a blues fan you know not that big of a blues fan he said, i wasn't at the time and he said but when you hear really good music you know it's good music it doesn't matter what genre it is yeah that's a good, point. A good yeah that's really good yeah two years later the men joined the first cast of saturday night live in new york and they had a chance to really develop the characters Ackroyd played Elwood, the straight man, and Belushi was Jake, the front man and alpha Illinois male. <laughs> yeah, they said he was so charismatic. He was always that person that got everyone to, to look when he entered a room. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dan Ackroyd really relied on that for the act. You know, yeah. so I'm, I'm the guy that's kind of in the background and you're the one that everyone's going to pay attention to. Yeah. He said, you can't just perform. You can't just go out there and sing. You have to perform you have to own it after the band played small gigs around town lorne michaels if you guys recognize that name mm-hmm. yeah you know the guy who made oh, snl oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> lorne michaels allowed them to warm up the audience at snl but he didn't grant them actual airtime as the popularity of the characters grew the mission became reacquainting audiences with the blues oh man how yeah. cool would that be to, to actually go to a taping of snl right and get to see that, even though it wasn't on TV. It wasn't, yeah. They just came out to kind of warm up the audience. Yeah. And Initially, their first blues sketch was a performance of Slim Harpo's I'm a King Bee. Ooh, that's a good tune. Yes. Mm-hmm. They were then billed as Howard Shore and his all-bee band. 
Yes, that was amazing because they wore bee costumes. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they were literally an all-bee band. This this was the compromise. They they kept asking Lorne Michaels, can we please perform? And he's, no. He's, you know what? We have a killer bee sketch. Well, piggyback off of that sketch. It's already popular. Mm-hmm. And have you guys sing as bees. <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> Come on. It's definitely different than the Blues Brothers. It, you can tell it's them, and it's got that same energy, because mm-hmm. they are singing the blues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but they're dressed as bees. They're not in these cool suits with these yeah. glasses. <laughs> they don't have, sunglasses. yeah, the dark sunglasses. <laughs> oh, my gosh. When the Blues Brothers came to SNL a second time, the host was Steve Martin, and they played the song Hey, Bartender. After their initial success, Steve Martin asked them to open for him at the Universal Amphitheater, which was an issue because they didn't actually have a concrete band at the time. They just kind of had some of the SNL dudes backing them up, but they didn't have an actual band. Yeah. Then, and Steve Martin says, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm doing a comedy show for nine nights. I want you to open for me. <laughs> and they're, oh, uh, <clears throat> yes. After that, Belushi and Paul Schaefer put together a list of big names, and they handpicked the group. And these were all pretty well-known blues artists. They were pretty big names, but John Belushi was pretty well-known, too, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he would call them all up at weird hours, they said, sometimes in the middle (laughs) of the night. And he'd say, I need you, I need you, like, I need you to be in this band, I'm putting a band together, and I need you to be in it. And they'd say, no, I can't, like, I'm mixing another track right now, I'm working on this, I I just need you, I just need you. And that's just how the phone call would go. I just, you you need to do it, like, I I just need you, yeah. Wow. And him being charismatic, how can you say no? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He was somebody that you couldn't say no to. You know, he would, he would do that, and you're just like, ah. Son of a. I'm disappointing him. What am I doing? Some of the guys said that they thought it was a prank. When, uh, they, when their phone oh. rang, and they picked it up, and they said, you know, hey, this is John Belushi. And he said he immediately hung up the phone. He says, oh, okay, that's hilarious. What a funny, what a funny joke. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was a good impression. Click. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and he goes, no, really, this is. This is not a joke. This is John Belushi, and I need you to come to New York for rehearsal because in California, we're opening for Steve Martin, and I need you to be in that band. And that is just <laughs> the craziest. Wow. Yeah. Damn. What a week. <laughs> what a week. <laughs> so one of the performances of this was recorded live and made into an album called Briefcase Full of Blues. The album topped the charts and had some hit singles such as Soul Man and Hey Bartender. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had this album. I was not alive in the in the 1970s, but I had, I had this album because I was obsessed with the Blues Brothers, and my mom gave me this for Christmas, and I didn't even know it existed. I just thought the movie was a thing. I had no idea yeah. that they were actually a band, and so I got this album, and I listened to it a lot. I had it on CD and vinyl. Ooh. Yeah, and I listened to it a lot. So with the help of Belushi's wife, Judy, and their friend, Mitch Glazer, they developed the story behind the Blues Brothers for performances, a plot that would later become the center point of their feature film. So they kind of already had this idea. Nice. They were creating this mythos. With the success of the album and the reputation of Ackroyd and Belushi, many media outlets reported that they were lampooning the music, making fun of the blues and its artists. Ridiculous. No, Aww. yeah. Members of the band started doing interviews to convince people how serious Dan and John were about the band. 
Dan Aykroyd studied to learn the harmonica for his part, and John Belushi had been a rock and roll drummer long before becoming a comedian. Heck yeah, man. That's amazing. They actually, yeah, they were very serious about it. They really were just trying to honor them. That, and that's awesome that they that he actually did the harmonica because there's a lot of movies and stuff where an actor will play an instrument <laughs> and you're yes. like they're they're not playing that instrument. <laughs> Ackroyd attributed the success of the Blues Brothers to the fact that disco was on its way out and there was a lull in popular American music tastes as the next fad was waiting to begin. Now we'll talk a little bit more about the band. The supporting members, the people that kind of lifted these guys up. The real deal. Yeah. Yeah, so the original members of the band were, as we said before, kind of a combination of SNL band members and members that Howard Shore had suggested. They were Steve the Colonel Cropper, Matt Guitar Murphy, Donald Duck Dunn, (laughs) Murphy Dunn, Willie Too Big Hall, Steve Gedwa, Jordan... Birch Crimson Slide Johnson, Tom Bones Malone, Blue Lou Marini, Alan Mr. Fabulous Rubin, Tom Triple Scale Scott, and finally Paul the Shiv Schaefer. Holy cow. Listen to those names. Bring that back. The nicknames? Yeah. Yeah. Where the heck are all those dope names? According to Steve Cropper, it ended up being one of the best collections of blues musicians I've ever seen. Heck yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the producers, Robert Weiss, pointed out the unique quality of the band. A Memphis fatback rhythm with slick New York horns on top, combined with Belushi's unique vocals and Aykroyd's harp playing. John Belushi, they would often get comments about how John Belushi wasn't a singer and how hmm. he shouldn't, yeah. you know, he's well, he really can't sing. He's a comedian, right? You know? Mm-hmm. And these guys w- would all be like, actually, he's pretty good. They still have tapes of their original recordings, and they listen to him, and they're like, nah, he was a good singer. He yeah. could do it. And because, because he was a good drum mm-hmm. player... Like Adam. Adam's yes, a good drummer. Adam's. Oh, Yeah, he's really good at keeping time. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd described the band as a Chicago electrified urban blues band. Aykroyd was quoted as saying, The Blues Brothers came off as a genuine article because we had Cropper and Dunn and Matt Murphy, those three magnificent Memphis guitar players. Murphy played with James Cotton, and Duck and Steve played on all those stacks slash Volt records. That combination was a powerhouse that was not to be duplicated. A Chicago-Memphis fusion band. That's what the Blues Brothers was, and that's what really made it work. They added legitimacy to our enterprise. I can hear I can hear Dan Aykroyd saying that. <laughs> it's just like, and it's nice that they explained what was different about it because if you're not a big blues fan, you don't really know what's different about their right, band. Right, what makes yeah. it special? Yeah, but you can also you can hear that kind of Saturday Night Live sound mm-hmm. in their in their music because of those horns. When the boys approached Matt Guitar Murphy, they told him they would pay him six fifty. When Murphy found out that that when they said that they meant six thousand five hundred, 
dollars, he reported that he almost fell out of his chair at the idea of making so much money. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for for one gig, yeah. yeah in okay. nineteen in the in the nineteen seventies, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, he they asked him to be part of it, and he said, "Well, how much?" They said six fifty, and he said, "Well, that's not enough. I need to be paid more than six fifty. And John Blue said, "No, I'm sorry, you don't understand. I mean, sixty five hundred dollars." Yeah. He said, <laughs> uh, oh, uh, I didn't think it'd be that much. That's another zero on there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. What a what a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Only a few of these musicians made appearances in the movie. Paul Schaefer was actually replaced by Murphy Murph Dunn for the film. Now, we found a little conflicting stories on why this happened. One of them was that on the special features section of the DVD, Dunn says that it was because of contractual obligations with SNL. But another source said that John Belushi was actually upset that Schaefer was splitting his creativeness with between the Blues Brothers and a different project with Gilda Radner, who was also with SNL. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. And so that's why he kind of kicked yeah, Schaefer it, off. I think what it was is that it was actually kind of both. Mm-hmm. So I think that he couldn't do the film because of those other contractual obligations and he couldn't yeah. split his time. And he was he was contracted. Like he could, he had to do those things. Yeah. And so, so everyone else kind of just said, well, it was a contractual thing. And John Belushi got upset about it yeah. because he was a very, he was a massively loyal person. And yes. he felt like he was being abandoned. And, and uh, about it. Yeah, he actually released a memo <laughs> and said, you know, Schaefer's out. He'll never be a blues brother. Ooh. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I mean, you know. Well, I mean, he still has the nickname, the Shiv. And yeah, all that, yeah. So. And I'm sure they were f- friends after that, too. I mean. After John Belushi's death, in 82, his brother Jim Belushi took over for him as Z Blues, Aww. which is, I think that's really sweet. And throughout the years, the band members have changed, but the soul is still there. The members later said that they had no idea that they would be playing with the same musicians for the rest of their lives. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's super cool. And I don't know how long Dan Aykroyd traveled with the band. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But they still do stuff. I've seen them, actually. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. They came to OU years ago. Wow. Yeah, that's where I went to college. Everybody listening went to Ohio University. <laughs> and and it was just awesome because I love the Booze Brothers so much. Yeah. Was, and they were so good. They were... Oh, I bet. So now let's talk about the movie. Yay! So the movie follows Jake and Elwood Blues, two brothers on a mission to save their home by raising $5,000 in just a couple of days. Oof. Yeah. Jake and Elwood find out that the orphanage that they were, grew up in is in trouble. The penguin, the nun that runs the <laughs> orphanage, is, is past due on tax money, I believe. Yes. yes. And uh, so they say, what's what's the only thing we can do to raise money? Get the band back together. Yeah. Yep. And that's what they do. They sure do. I was actually kind of surprised while watching how easy that part was (laughs) like they were just like hey bands getting back together and they were like hell yeah (laughs) (laughs) like pretty almost almost every person was like that and that's not what i expected but 
I am happy that it went that way because it left more time for more fun things. Yes, to happen for the rest the of the movie. Yeah. 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 In 1978, John Belushi was on top of the world with a number one TV show, movie, and album. So it seemed obvious to him and Dan Aykroyd that it was time to take this show to the big screen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, baby. According to Vanity Fair, an executive for Universal named Sean Daniel won the bid for the project and called his boss and said, Belushi, Aykroyd, Blues Brothers, how about it? (laughs) To which his boss replied, great, I'll tell Lou. Lou being Lou Wasserman, the Universal Pictures boss boss of bosses. Wow. Heck. How cool is that? (laughs) It's like, look, here's the the bottom line. Here's the quick pitch. Yeah, Yeah, done. It's like, heck yeah. (laughs) How much? (laughs) Apparently there wasn't much discussion after that. The movie seemed like a great idea to everyone involved. Wasserman wanted a budget of $12 million for the film, while filmmakers asked for $20 million. Budget and schedule would soon become two of the biggest issues this movie faced. (sighs) Dang it. Yeah. John Landis, the director of Animal House, was part of Belushi's movie Stardom, and an obvious choice for director. Next came the question of who would write the film. Everyone turned to Dan Aykroyd, the 25-year-old mastermind who had written his own SNL sketches. The issue was that Aykroyd had never even read a screenplay. So, when he sat down to write it, he got carried away with descriptions of sets and character (laughs) profiles and tried to put all he knew of the Blues Brothers in one volume. It ended up being 324 pages long. I mean... When he delivered the screenplay to producer Robert Robert Weiss, he jokingly bound it in such a way that it looked like a phone book. <laughs> I thought it was funny how thick it was. Like, imagine how much stuff had to get cut out, right? Because oh, yeah. obviously it's way too long. But what if you just changed the, the cover page of it? <laughs> so you open it up and it's like the Blues Brothers Extended Universe. <laughs> it's like a 10-year plan for the Blues Brothers. That would have been pretty great. John Landis took the screenplay and condensed it. While he recognized that, that the draft had great ideas and tone, he described it as incoherent. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. It took so long that the crew started shooting before they had a finished screenplay. Wow. Another funny story I heard about John Landis was that John Belushi like, wanted his approval so much that he would call him after SNL shows and say, hey, did you watch the show tonight? And John Landis would say no. And he said, fuck you. And he'd hang up the phone. Oh. <laughs> oh. Wow. Dude. <laughs> Imagine having that kind of power. <laughs> and that's your director. To be able to yeah. say that to him. Wow. So the music in the movie. The music was handpicked by Landis, Aykroyd, and Belushi. And it was a meticulous process. Landis has spoken frustration at the fact that some don't consider the Blues Brothers a musical, despite the fact that the cinematographer and director both had classic and had classic American movie musicals in mind while putting the scenes together. Yeah, I mean, that's that's weird. Yeah, I mean, maybe too many people think of it as a comedy first. I mean, we mentioned that yeah. before. Comedy but, that happens to have songs in it. Yeah, 
The cast and crew describe it as a camouflage musical that captured the feeling of the city of Chicago and the times, but where characters didn't exclusively burst into song to express emotion. Having characters break into song often doesn't feel organic, but the film seemed to overcome that obstacle, so the music feels naturally placed and not just an action comedy with songs added. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was one of the things that they were trying to strive for Mm -hmm. with this movie. And, you know, when they were handpicking music, they would go to John Belushi's uh, apartment or home, and he would, he had this, like, long wall of 45s. And he would just pull 45 off the wall and put it on the record player, listen to it, go, nah, pick it up, smashed it onto the ground. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's the a fuck? You know, Come on. I have to say, that is a good way to know that you're not going to pick it up and try it again. I mean, <laughs> just set it somewhere else, though. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> oh, what if it was like a limited edition? Or something like that. Smash. Oh, wow. Oh. Carlton Johnson choreographed the musical scenes. I guess he was a choreographer for the Carol Burnett show. Oh, nice. Yeah. And he only used amateur dancers, so no background dancers would upstage Belushi and Aykroyd. Uh-huh. Neither of them were dancers. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it, it feels more like just random crowd coming in yes. that way, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. For the scenes with James with James Brown in the church, the movie actually did bring in professional dancers, but it's really only that scene. Ah, okay. Yeah, so I guess, you know, Landis saw the other scenes with the amateur dancers, and he said, Ooh, I don't know if I made the right choice with that. So uh, he's brought in some professionals we'll for, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, guess, I guess the compromise is okay, because they're not dancing in that scene. Mm-hmm. Not the whole time, at least, maybe for yeah. a second right, he does. Right, they're just in but, the back of the church. Yeah. yeah. I have seen the light. shake your tail feather with ray charles was a huge musical number shot on the street in chicago it was freezing temperatures at the time even though the scene takes place in summer so the dancers were in summer clothes and likely very cold oh Oh, man props to them Mm -hmm. yeah but they were all amateurs they just they got and i think that's awesome Mm -hmm. i they made it 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 was seemed more real like these could be real people just on the street in chicago Coming yeah. together just like, oh, hey, Ray Charles. I mean. Shaking their tail feathers. Yeah. I mean, it's weird that they're all doing the same dance, I guess. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, if it was like a line dance, it yeah, would, it would be fine. The attitude of Jake Blues and his band on screen mirrored the attitudes of real life. Belushi gathered all the members together to pitch the movie and told each that they were the heartbeat of the band. They had a few concerns, like how much would they get paid and who would get paid the most. And of course, the ever-present concern that they were a white band playing black music. Hmm. Belushi handled every problem the bandmates had, and and Aykroyd referred to him as the leader. So they did. They had a lot of issues, and that is a question. I mean, that's a good point to bring up. So there were several guest stars in this movie. If you have seen it, you'll notice... It's pretty obvious, especially if you're familiar with music and mm-hmm. just music history. Mm-hmm. And the first big one, I mean, besides Cab Calloway is very early in the movie, but like the first big one is James Brown. Every time someone would pop up, I'd be like, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know that. <laughs> yeah. hey. I recognize oh. what? Just every time. Yes, yes. <laughs> Another gigantic piece of the film was its legacy guest stars. 
One benefit to the time was that most of these R&B greats weren't working as much anymore, with the exception of Ray Charles. And getting them to do the shoots was fairly simple. The cast and crew were starstruck by these artists. They were their heroes. Aretha Franklin had issues lip-syncing her number, simply because she never sang a song the same way twice. This is an incredible quality that partly made her the Queen of Soul, but difficult when you're making a movie musical. Huh. I, I hadn't considered that at all. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Someone who's so talented. Yeah. She, and she, able to, yeah. Just, she's able to just feel it yeah. every time. And it's just like, how, what, wherever it takes her, just yeah. do it. And it always works out because she's that good mm-hmm. where she's not going to like, air quotes, like feel it in the wrong way. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Her kind of improvising as she goes is never going to sound bad because she's just right. that good. Yeah. And it means that she has the capability to make decisions in the moment. Yeah. And that's such a unique thing. And she had, she was such a unique artist. It's just, you know, it's so cool because you know that if you ever went to see her, mm-hmm. the performance that you saw, no one else ever did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At yeah. any other later time. Executives actually didn't want Franklin to be in the picture because her popularity was waning at the time. They wanted Rose Royce, the band known for singing the hit theme for Car Wash, but the team behind the movie refused. I know. I mean, no hate on Rose Royce, but like... Come on. It's Aretha Franklin. Franklin. I'm so glad she's in this. The diner scene featuring Franklin was not favored by critics, especially because Blue Lou Marini's head is cut off while he's dancing on the counter, which looked unintentional in the shot. It was actually intentional. John Landis thought it was a funny joke. I (laughs) (laughs) people need to adjust chill because that scene is great (laughs) people were thinking that it was it it looked haphazard that his head was cut off (laughs) i think it i think it works perfectly in making it feel like a spur of the moment right song where it's a little bit chaotic one of my favorite parts of that whole scene is how the Blues Brothers are sitting there at the counter, you know. They mm-hmm. had just ordered <laughs> fake food or yeah. whatever. Yes. Um, and they they just let this happen. Because the song is essentially, like, not a full-on argument between um, Aretha and her husband. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, telling him not to go, basically, right? But they're just kind of sitting there letting it happen. And then for, like, two minutes, <laughs> they get up and they're like... <laughs> they're doing all the moves and then they just sit back down and yep. the song continues <laughs> I think that's so funny that's <laughs> so funny because how do they know what to do at that moment and then they're just yeah like, they just get to sit back down Franklin later said that her appearance in the movie broadened her audience and introduced new people to her that's great James Brown was another act that didn't sing his song the same way twice so they pre-recorded everyone's vocals in the church scene and recorded Brown's vocals live they also recorded John Lee Hooker's vocals live in the film. Wow. Sweet. Yeah. Ray Charles' vocals were pre-recorded. <laughs> but for Cab Calloway, Cab's number was the most challenging with a live audience of over a thousand people. They even advertised the show on the radio and gave away prizes while they waited around for the shoot to start. Wow. Yeah. He wanted to record Minnie the Moocher, his signature song, as a disco track, since that's what was popular. 
Excuse me? He didn't understand why the creators wanted the old-fashioned way from 50 years before. So the first time he recorded it, he went into the booth. He was kind of angry because he wanted to do the disco one. Mm -hmm. And he went into the booth, he recorded it, came back, he was like, how was that? And John Landis said, that was kind of mediocre. I kind of want you to do it again. (laughs) And... Yeah, this Cab Calloway is, I mean, uh, like, he's a legend. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. And he got really upset, and he was just like, well, I'm sorry. He said, you're Cab Calloway, so it's got to be great because yeah. people expect great from you. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, so you want it to be great. You have to tell me that. You know, and he went back in. <laughs> he redid it, and it was really good. He said it was great. He came back. He said, you know, well, how was that? He goes, well, that was great. And he goes, well, you need to tell me what you want. And then he stormed off. And then, <laughs> and then, and then they said he showed up for the physical shoot, and he was so nice, so warm, mm. wonderful to work with. He was really great to the band. The band loved wow. him. Yeah. Huh. And uh, one of the band members, you know, said he just admired how he just kind of went through. You know, he just kind of started the music and did it. And he said that to Cab Calloway, and Cab Calloway responded, he said, when you've got good musicians, you don't have to say anything. And if you don't have good musicians, there's nothing you can say. Because hmm. he didn't give them any direction, he just started just, the song. There we go. Yeah. I guess I don't blame him also, because if I, I were somebody of that caliber being told mm-hmm. that was kind of mediocre i'd be like excuse me by this young hot shot director yeah. Yeah. do you know who i am <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i'm glad to hear that he was a lot nicer on set because he seemed like the nicest guy in the movie yeah like, yeah i would love to hang out with yeah him. they said in person he was awesome yeah. and they would spend all their time That's he good. was just a great guy so a big part of this movie is the cars. Mm-hmm. You can't yes. have this movie without cars. Lightning McQueen. Yes. When I first saw this, I was the, I was homesick when I first saw this movie, and it was on TV, and what really drew me in was right before they showed it, they said, for this next film, you know, they didn't use green screens. They actually drove over 100 miles an hour to, through the streets of downtown Chicago. Mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd is a vehicle fanatic in real life who enjoys just driving for the sake of driving. Elwood is a genius driver for this reason, and he chooses a decommissioned cop car because how else could someone outrun the cops but with their own vehicle? It makes perfect sense. It sure does, yeah. Originally, the car was supposed to be magic, which would explain how it makes the jump over the bridge early in the film. Uh. There was a deleted scene... (laughs) Yeah, there was a deleted scene where Elwood explained how the car was given special powers to do backflips and other stunts. The explanation was that they parked the car in a garage with a power with powerful transformers and soaked up that energy. So you know that there's a scene where they play the Peter Gunn theme, I see. and um, you know when they're playing the Peter Gunn theme, they park in that garage mm-hmm. and they it's a real thin, slim garage, and they just kind of yeah. pull themselves out of it. They can't yeah. even open the doors. Mm-hmm. And uh, that—that's what they would have referenced in that scene, you know. Those—that's mm. you're parking near these big transformers and soaking up all this energy. And that's when, near the end of the movie, the car does a kind of a random backflip over <laughs> over yes, the Illinois Nazi car. Right, yeah, those backflips and then just like like weird jumps mm-hmm. that don't make sense. 
But yeah. but you know what? I I accepted it without the magic because I was <laughs> yes. like, of course they would do that. It's hilarious. Yes. Because exactly. at the end of the day, this movie is also a comedy. Yes, mm-hmm. and that that was kind of how John Landis saw it. He was okay. like, we don't have to explain the magic. Yeah. People a, get that it's a movie. You yeah. know, yes. the, the, it's it's okay. It's sillier yeah. and funnier that way. Mm-hmm. There were thirteen different bluesmobiles used for different purposes in the film. It's the scene when the Illinois Nazis are chasing Jake and Elwood. They used a model of the Bluesmobile and launched it into the air. For the Pinto that the Nazis are driving, they used an actual car and dropped it from above the Chicago skyline. They had to get the car certified to ensure that it wouldn't float past the designated area before crashing into the ground. (laughs) That's craziness. The man. footage of it is nuts. It's yeah. just it's so it's cuz the footage is in the movie, but also just the the they show you in the like the special features they show you the car mm-hmm. after yeah. they've it's dropped pancake, it's man. literally yeah, it's a pancake yes. from falling that far. It's really funny when they're like towing it away cuz it's like wheels don't really yes. work anymore and it yes. just like is flopping behind it's it. It's just kind of bouncing along <laughs> yeah. on the ground. Yeah. And I and I just for a second I want to talk a little bit about the Illinois Nazis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. because they're so random in this movie yeah i was i was literally <laughs> taken aback by that i was like there are also nazis in this movie yeah they, it's it's great nazis show up in the blues brothers and it's like a c plot at best yeah, <laughs> yeah. and they're kind of chasing because they're pissed you know because they run them off the bridge so because basically if you haven't seen this movie i recommend you go watch it but throughout the movie they piss people off kind of as they go <laughs> and and that's a lot a lot of the story is they're making people angry yep. angrier and angrier and so by the end of the movie they're being chased by so many people that it's this grand scale of yeah each police car they purchased they purchased for four hundred dollars and they bought 60 of them the cars really were traveling over 100 miles per hour in downtown Chicago, just that, like I said. That is super cool, man. So the mall scene was another oh, big scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love the mall scene. It's one of my favorite parts. So, yeah. The mall scene was shot in a real abandoned mall in Illinois, which was perfect so they could totally create and destroy the building. It all makes sense mm-hmm. now because I was like, I can't believe <laughs> this is happening. Like, they really just drive through a Toys R Us. Like, like, <laughs> like I, you know, obviously it's a movie and I'm like, well, they got, they got permission to do it or somehow. whatever, somehow. <laughs> but, I, but the extent of the damage. Yes. But now that it was, now I realize it's an abandoned mall. I'm like, oh, okay. So mm-hmm. they literally could do whatever. Good yep. Mention. There were hundreds of thousands of dollars in merchandise in some of the stores, and they meticulously decorated the whole space. There were stores marked that they could drive through and ones that they couldn't. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And they also had to hire guards to keep people from stealing the goods. (laughs) But then the guards started to steal, too. (laughs) Yep. They said they had to start getting guards for their guards. No way. (laughs) Yeah. What the f- Yep. Kidding yeah. me. Free stuff. <laughs> but destroyed. Half of it at least. Oh. You know. 
Every car in the parking lot was a brand new car on loan for the scene, and they could not hit them under under any circumstances. Yes, that's why they go through the mall. That's why they don't hit the cars in the, yeah, in so the lot. They go into the parking lot so like. Yeah. Like, oh great! What are you gonna? How are you gonna get out of the parking lot? Yeah. I'll just go. Yeah, I'll just go through the mall. Yeah. <laughs> So every weekend, 40 stunt drivers were flown in, and one of them was John Wayne's son, Ethan Wayne. Nice. This is pretty cool. And one of the other stunt drivers actually drove off of a ramp that was 150 feet long, but luckily only minor injuries were reported. So the big finale scene where they came in and sang and danced shortly before filming this big scene, John Belushi hurt himself on a child's skateboard. Oh, <laughs> <sighs> Could you <imagine>? God. <laughs> oh boy. If I, if I were the director and some, and, and I got like a call, like <laughs> John's hurt. What? Oh my gosh. What happened? <laughs> he tripped on a kid's skateboard. <laughs> John. They, they actually they had to convince the best orthopedist in town to fix him up over Thanksgiving weekend in order for him to be good enough, like in good enough shape to dance and do cartwheels. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the big stories about that, I mean, if you're going to talk about this movie, you've got to talk about its production because it was a mess. This was a messy movie. <laughs> For sure. The film's final cost was $27.5 million. Good grief. Remember how in, a while ago we said they wanted $12 million? Mm-hmm. They got $27. So it, and and not, a half. Yeah, and, yeah. Not, and not because, you know, they were graciously given that. It's mm-hmm. because it ended up just costing that much money. The salaries for the leads were set at the beginning and didn't change throughout filming. Dan Aykroyd was paid half of what John Belushi was, $250. Two hundred and fifty thousand to Belushi's five hundred thousand. Wow. And then you know that they were still best foot buds. That didn't bother him. I mean, it I, makes yeah. a lot of sense. I mean, if yeah. he's already got money in the walls, then he doesn't yeah. really. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't exactly, really exactly. Need it. Yeah. Part of the reason that the film was wildly over budget was because of delayed shoots, which meant more man hours. That had a lot to do with John Belushi, who was an avid partier. Oh, goody. Yeah. Mm. Although Belushi was known as a partier, he was highly regarded among the band and the cast. He was known as one of the most loyal and friendly people in show business, as long as he decided you were friends. (laughs) And he was often everyone's friend. (laughs) So he was like a big teddy bear. So there actually was, there was an actual cocaine budget for the Blues Brothers. Okay. Yeah, they had set aside part of the budget for cocaine for... That really did happen. And Dan Aykroyd said, too, he's, I did it. I mean, everybody did it. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. You know. I mean, it was partly used to help the people on set stay awake and, and be able to. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> John Belushi felt that cocaine was crucial to his creative process. Carrie Fisher guessed that he was taking about four grams a day. Finally, it got so bad that Landis had to flush his drugs down the toilet and kept them away for the rest of the shoot. Belushi actually also got lost at one point during the filming, and someone saw him cross into a neighborhood, so Ackroyd followed. He found Belushi had crashed on a stranger's couch. So this is like, he went missing, no one knew where he was, someone was like, well, we kind of saw him cross the street, and the, you know, so they go into this little neighborhood, someone says, oh, he went into that house, Dan Ackroyd knocks on the door, 
man opens it and he says, oh yeah, he kind of, kind of whispered, oh yeah, yeah, John Belushi's here. He's, he's, he's over there sleeping on the couch. <laughs> you know, he's, John Belushi literally like just st- stepped into the stranger's house, said, hey, I'm John Belushi. You know who I am. <laughs> oh my He gosh. went over to his fridge, grabbed a glass of milk, made himself a sandwich, and then laid down on this guy's couch and just fell asleep. Wow. Amazing. I mean, that 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 person now has the greatest right. story at every future gathering they yeah. ever go to. Yeah, John Belushi <laughs> no one crashed on my couch. Yeah. There are probably 60 people in Chicago who all say they're the person that John oh, Belushi yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who knows who it really is. Yeah, Crazy. yeah. Dan Aykroyd referred to him as America's guest. Nice. <laughs> I mean, I mean, who wouldn't let John Belushi into their house? Yeah. yeah, exactly. The realness of the film, also attributed to the cost. Blocking off city streets takes time and money, along with paying for stunt people to stand on the street and in the mall so no actual pedestrians were in danger. Yep. This movie today would cost a lot less because of CGI. Oh yeah, that's just a good point. so yeah. much less. They would they wouldn't have crashed the cars, and mm-hmm. there's so much more destruction in movies now. That's all computer, mm-hmm. but yeah. So this movie, a big part of this movie, I think one of I mean, really one of the biggest parts is that it's filmed in Chicago. You know, they showed you this gritty mm-hmm. part. That this is the pe- this is what it's like to live in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it was funny because you had mentioned that to me before watching this. Like, oh, they weren't, like, super pleased at the mm-hmm. depiction of Chicago or whatever. And then the movie starts with, like, a <laughs> shot of just, like, the darkest, grossest <laughs> sky. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. With, like, those natural gas burning yes. towers with mm-hmm. flames at the top. And I'm just like... Oh. <laughs> Mayor Daly of Chicago had made a rule that no filming was allowed there. He had passed away shortly before the Blues Brothers, which means that it was the first major motion picture shot there in a long time. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> One of the biggest jokes in the movie is its scale, and the fact that they used real cars for their crashes and stunts helped with that level of visual destruction. Yeah, man. Just so much. Mm-hmm. I know it almost hurts when you're watching it because yeah. you're thinking, oh, God, how much is this? How much yeah. does this cost? Yeah. And again, uh, a- again, that scene of the cops driving into the ditch because they can't make that freaking turn. <laughs> yeah. I was watching that and they just kept crashing. I'm like, stop. Yeah. <laughs> this is the movie was so expensive. <laughs> they used 150 National Guardsmen, 60 Chicago cops, 350 guns, 150 batons, four tanks and three helicopters. <laughs> Oh, my God. They had a war room where they planned each stage gag and wanted to make the final scene as warlike as possible. There is footage of Landis with the, with the megaphone and the guys are getting off getting off the car. And they're like, hut, 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 hut. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like, he goes, louder, run, you know, get him. Like, he's like screaming at him. <laughs> That's so great. So, this movie... Wasn't received as well as they had hoped. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah. Crash. Yeah. Kind of had to become a cult classic. Apparently, the Los Angeles Times at the time had called it a $30 million wreck. Boo. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. Uh. 
It did, however, become popular overseas in places like Australia. Landis actually said that it was the first movie to make more money overseas than in America. That's crazy. I wonder why Australia liked it so much. Yeah, I don't know. Because they're cool. It just just hit with them better. Wow, this is what America's really like. (laughs) I hope that's what they thought. Yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) One of the reasons that this may be is that it was booked in less than half the amount of movie theaters it should have been. Instead of the, like, 1,400, it was shown in only about 600 because the theater owners actually feared that a white audience would not like it. That's really sad. It is sad and dumb. If you're going to take that as a factor for showing ev- all of your movies, mm-hmm. then you'd be showing like you know pretty much nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cuz oh cuz this side won't like this one or oh this maybe these guys won't like this one or you can't please everybody. You sounded like Donald Duck. <laughs> I'm upset like Donald Duck is. So some fun facts that we have here. Dan Aykroyd actually proposed to Carrie Fisher on the set. Oh. Yes. Yeah, if you can believe it. She, they had kind of been seeing each other. Mm-hmm. And she actually was choking on what she said she should not have been eating, which was a Brussels sprout. <laughs> and so Aykroyd had to give her the Heimlich maneuver. Oh, no. And then he yes. proposed after that. How embarrassing. Aww. <laughs> Yeah, and I read, too, that it was kind of an arranged relationship. John Belushi kind of thought, hey, you guys would be a good couple. Oh, really? You're a couple now. And then <laughs> yeah. they just kind of started I dating. said you're a couple, so. <laughs> oh, That's no, just, John Belushi said it. I have to. There's just, like, something that I, I really relate to John Belushi in so many ways. <laughs> like, there's just, like, I would definitely do that to Marcy. Oh, like, yeah, that's the I mean, thing. You... Like, I would absolutely do that. I would be like, hey, you know what? You're kind of cute. Marcy, you're single. You guys are dating now. Like, I could see, I could see me doing something like that. Okay, I'm in a relationship (laughs) So another cool thing that happened was that John Paul II was actually in Chicago at the time of filming, and he decided to visit the cast and crew. (laughs) Kind of oh, man. the he, set with his... He should have cool made a cameo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would have made, That would have been a great cameo. What if they, like, go back? They're, to, they're like, we're on a mission from God, you know, and, like, pass him and he just gives him a thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That would have been perfect. Just the Pope-mobile goes by that, and it's like... That would be amazing. That would have been so great. Oh. Or, or if they went back to visit the nun at the beginning... Um, and he was just there in the office, just like, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't even say a line. Yeah, he's just hanging he's out. He's just like, what's up? He's like, I'm just like, making a house call Yeah, with the Pope. Yeah. I'm just in Chicago. Like, the Penguin has that much pull <laughs> that she can get the Pope in that room. What a time. So, in 2010, in 2010, the film was actually deemed a Catholic classic by the Vatican due to Jake and Ed Elwood's admirable mission to save the only family and home they know the orphanage yeah oh cool that is pretty cool surprising I, but cool. it is surprising yeah. <laughs> yeah they're not usually what's the word i'm looking for cool about things <laughs> and and just the, yeah just the idea that they say something like we're on a mission from god and even aretha franklin's character says don't you blaspheme in here mm-hmm. you know so i i would immediately think that the church would say mm, 
Wait a second, they are blasphemy. Mm, you know, but I I don't know because they approve the movie. They so. like it. Yeah, they they, they must like it. it. Yeah. yeah, even with Jake and Elwood swearing there right in in the Penguin's oh, yeah. office. Yeah, That's uh, right. yeah. <laughs> I think they like that she punishes them. Yeah, she smacks yeah. the crap out of them. <laughs> <She does. laughs> yeah, back and forth. Nuns used to do that though. Yeah. <laughs> My parents would tell you stories. Yeah. I guess it's just, you know, we're able to laugh about that yeah. kind of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. it was ridiculous. Yeah. Why did we do that? <laughs> so, all right. So we're winding down here, and I guess we're probably just going to go through who's in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know? If you've seen it, you know who's in it. There's but, a lot yeah. of them. Yes. This movie starred John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd as Jake and Elwood Blues. Mm-hmm. You know, John Belushi, he was also in Animal House. Mm-hmm. He was on a SNL, mm-hmm. you know, he tragically died only a couple years later. I think it was only two yeah. years later. So he was, didn't have a chance to be in nearly as many movies as he wanted to be because mm-hmm. he wanted to be a movie he, star. He would yeah. have been in so many. Yes. And they all probably would have been great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd, he's in Ghostbusters. I mean... I mean, he owned a speakeasy. He owns that weird alcohol now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crystal Skull Mark. Yeah, that's skull. right. That's right. <laughs> Three times distilled in diamonds. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so in the movie, there's also Carrie Fisher. She plays this mystery woman that that Jake used to date. <laughs> Her character is so crazy to me. I love I love. I it. loved it because it was so weird. Yes. I remember the first time she showed up, I was like, what the hell? What was that blowing <laughs> up the fucking apartment? It's great because they don't, yeah. And they just, there's nothing. They don't address it. it. They they get blown up. They're, they fall down. There's mm-hmm. bricks on them. And they literally just get back up and just keep walking. Yeah. Like, n- yeah. neither one of them goes, what What was that? They just they just keep going. It's just like, the way it is in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. This is just our lives. Yep. Mm-hmm. Women Time just to try to kill up. us with bazookas. And... So also we've got John Candy. Yeah, he's like Jeez. the detective or the yeah. main guy. Yeah. Stephen Williams played Trooper Mount. Uh, he played Captain Fuller in the original 21 Jump Street. Oh. Which yeah. doesn't mean anything to you right now, Adam, but it will. Okay. When I force you to watch 21 Jump Street. I don't say it's gonna force. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be great. You're you, going to like it. Yeah, you look like you're going to love a 1980s melodrama about police officers pretending to be teenagers. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's written all over your face. I'm so excited. <laughs> anyway. John Landis played Trooper LaFong, so I guess Landis made a, yeah. a little bit Cameo. of a... Yeah. Frank Oz was the corrections officer in the very beginning of the movie. Yeah. yeah. Which they, they actually reference later on in the movie because at that moment he's, you know, one unused prophylactic, you know, <laughs> one soiled. Soil. And, you know, so he has, you know, he's that at the beginning of the movie. And then later on, right before they crash into the mall, um, a character holds up, I think it's a Kermit the Frog or somebody, and he says, Do you have Miss Piggy? Oh yeah, and then, yeah. And then the the car crashes in, and off. Obviously, Frank Oz, the voice of Miss Piggy, mm-hmm. voice of Yoda, mm-hmm. Twiggy, plays a cameo in this. And Twiggy, that's I love her appearance in this because that's something that people our age it, are not going to get. Like, yeah. So yeah. I just knew that she was a, a pop culture icon in the 1970s. Yeah, I had no idea who she was yeah that's why i I was like oh hey so you know that's a she's like a model gotcha Mm -hmm. so it's hilarious that 
you know, Elwood's like, hey, you know, but like not- charges her ninety four dollars to pump her gas. <laughs> yeah, she totally pays it. Yeah, and, and not even like well too. He doesn't like hit on her well. Yeah, it's like we, you know, if we want, if that doesn't work out, you can come over to this other place maybe this hotel i mean i don't know yeah and then she does it and she does but of course he goes to prison so Boo. <laughs> there's henry gibson he plays the head illinois nazi yep uh henry gibson is in the burbs he plays the big baddie in the burbs but also he plays really o'reilly in the luck of the irish yeah, yeah. The great the disney channel original movie and <laughs> we yes. love it so much yes we we do we do it's really funny to see him do this. Yeah, yeah. What a what a juxtaposition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh gosh, the band members played themselves. That's fantastic. Yeah, there was Macatar Murphy, Steve Cropper, Donald Duck Dunn, <laughs> Blue Lou Marini, Alan uh, Mister Fabulous Rubin, Tom Bones Malone, and Murphy Murph Dunn. And Murphy, and remember too, like Murphy replaced Paul Schaefer. Ah, oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and then of course after that, there are special musical guest stars: Cab Calloway, James Brown, Ray Charles, John Lee Hooker, Aretha Franklin. So yeah. lovely, all of them. Yes. And they all did such good numbers too. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, not just making their own like little cameos of mm-hmm. like, hey, how you doing? I'm a music star. Hi. <laughs> no, they got to they got to like do a thing yes. for a minute and it's great. And especially in the version that we watched mm-hmm. because I found out that the Amazon version mm-hmm. has like chunks cut from it. Oh. Yeah. We didn't uh, know that. Yes. Oh. Um there are a lot of a lot of the music moments are shortened just because they're trying to make the movie shorter because it is quite a long it's a movie long film, yeah. but oh my gosh they, they shortened some of the 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 musical numbers and then like just cut out little bits and pieces here and there why i i i don't know it makes me huh. angry i mean i don't know if it was like just i don't know if it was amazon that did it or if it's just another cut of the movie that yeah. happened to be shorter so then there's some real small cameos yeah teeny tiny ones yeah so, we have Steven Spielberg as the audit clerk at the yes. very end. The guy who's, like, eating his lunch. Yep. Yeah. At, at the end. He's like, I'll be back I'll be in back five, in five minutes. minutes. They're <laughs> trying to wait. All the cops are descending upon them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, um. <laughs> I like how he's like, can I help you guys? And they just push him yeah. in. <laughs> We're going. Yeah. They, they, even, they even pick him up and put him on the couch. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Which I thought they're was like, hilarious. Here's the $5,000. He's like writing out their little receipt. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Shaka Khan as a choir soloist. Yeah. In, yeah, at the church. And then we have Paul Rubens, who we may know as Pee Wee Herman, mm-hmm. as the waiter. Yeah. Yes. That was, yes. Such, that was a quick one. And yeah. this is 1980. So this is mm-hmm. be- really before a lot of, before Pee Wee Herman. Mm-hmm. So he's just played a bit part in this. Oh, man. I forgot about that scene, too. This is, it is a long movie, but dang, <laughs> there are so many good parts yes. in it. I forgot about the That's restaurant. That's one of my favorite parts of the oh, whole movie is yes. the restaurant when they're trying to get Mr. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. And so they, <laughs> Mr. Fabulous is the major d at this restaurant he goes they go in and they know these guys are gross the blues brothers they mm-hmm. even showered they smell bad yeah. they you know they've been driving around all day mm-hmm. 
and uh, you know they're just offending everybody by eating lots of food eating not really loudly yeah. yeah and it was the perfect way to get him to leave the restaurant too because they're just like if you don't come with us we're gonna come eat here every day yes yeah. <laughs> just like this I love it. I love so in the original script, it took a lot longer to get the people. Oh, really? That that was one of the things they cut down, was the fact that it was kind of like they um, at one point they pick up three guys at once mm-hmm. and two guys mm-hmm. at once, and they mm-hmm. they did that, and that so that kind of helped <laughs> with shorten the movie. So you know, we thought that we'd start out. It'd be fitting to start out our June tunes with this comedy action musical film in the month and year that it turns forty. Yay! Blues Brothers turns forty this June. Hooray! Happy birthday, Blues Brothers! Happy, Happy birthday. birthday! Yeah. Are we qu- quoting Frosty the Snowman there. Yes. Happy birthday! <laughs> um, but real quick, I also wanted to mention one of my favorite moments of the movie. Um. In the diner, I know we mentioned it a whole bunch, but going back to the diner for a second, when they order four chickens and a Coke, like what, breast, a wing, or like, no, the whole chicken, four whole chickens and a Coke. And then he just, and then. White toast. Oh, just orders white toast. You want jam on that? Nope. White toast. And then she goes back and is like, these two guys out here want four chickens and and a Coke. And he's like. Oh, John or um, Jake. Jake, yeah. And then he's like, in the other, it's just white toast and and nothing on it. Oh shit! Yes. <laughs> oh shit! The Blues Brothers. <laughs> and it's and it's it's such a great moment. I loved it because <laughs> just the fact that the, he knows yes. that ridiculous order can only be the Blues Brothers, and I and I. I yeah, I also that love up. that from you, there's an angle where you can see that from from where he was flipping the burgers, yeah. he yeah. saw them come in. Yes. Yeah, he could just <laughs> see them. Yeah. them, and he could probably hear them because they were literally right near where yeah. he was. Yeah. <laughs> he just wasn't paying attention. Yeah. I guess flipping, you know, cooking his burgers. But oh, yeah. Oh, anyway. Yeah, I this movie was such a big deal to me. I was so excited. I I was too young to watch it. It's rated R. Is uh, it? Yeah. Oh, I guess because they swear a lot. And I, yeah, I was too young to watch it, but I didn't know because I saw it on TV. It was such a big deal for me. And I remember I actually stayed up, but I, the reason I was homesick was because I stayed up late watching the Grammys mm. <laughs> the night before. And so I actually Sitting. just was in the same chair. Yeah, just uh. watching the Grammys. And I woke up and I was feeling kind of sick and I was Oof. like, oh, I better stay home. So my mom let me and I just sat in the chair all day and just watched whatever was on TV. I wonder how things would be different you know it's just like it's just a moment like that right you're just like oh you happen to feel sick this night mm-hmm. and the next day you happen to catch the blues brothers on tv right yeah either of those things could have changed that quick like even if you just changed the channel at the wrong time right yeah you know yeah. it's like wow what a what a cool coincidence and then it spawned this whole obsession and then eventually this this episode yeah that's true and yeah. you know just that and i played harmonica at the time yeah and if if you listen to our show you know there's a harmonica at the beginning of our show that's right yeah. that's me playing the harmonica. I, i'm not good at it but at least i played a got, little bit you got the catchiest little tune ever <laughs> and it's our theme but yeah i just this movie's really special to me and it was so i'm so happy i got to talk about it with you guys well all right I think that's another case closed. 
Oh, Woo! yeah. That was a good one. We did it. Starting off season four oh, strong. Yes. 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 Oh, thank you so much for listening. If you like our show, you can follow us on Twitter, at Black Case Diary. On Instagram, at Black Case Diaries Podcast. We have a website, blackcasediaries.com. It- hey, you want to be that cool, cool person who gives us that 40th five star? <laughs> That will be sweet. We've talked about this for three episodes now. We have 39 reviews yes. slash ratings on yeah, iTunes. Yeah. Please. Yes. And it'll be perfect because Blues Brothers <gasps> is turning 40. Oh. Yes. It'll be our 40th thing. Oh. Please. It's perfect. Yes. Screenshot it. Send it to us. Maybe we'll send you something. We'll give yeah. you a shout yeah. out. Maybe. At we'll the give very you a shout least. out or yeah. something. So oh, we want to thank our patrons. Thank you for sticking with us. Joel and John and Jacob and Anthony and Shelly. Yes, yes, thank, thank you. you guys. Ha Hit it. Stay blue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 They're not going to catch us. We're on a mission from God.